Sometimes, you know, if, if you find yourself in the situation where you plan to talk about one thing and you get there and find out the audience isn't interested in that, well, my advice is that's the time to turn off PowerPoint and just have the conversation with them. Welcome to Making It to Market, the podcast where we discuss everything about taking your product or service idea through to commercialization. I'm your host, Dahlia Collada. Have you ever given a presentation and the listener became disengaged or disinterested? Maybe it's your delivery. Maybe it's your presentation. How do you craft a presentation that will elicit fast decision-making? In the last episode, we talked about how to create effective and memorable messages through storytelling. Well, we're back again with Kevin Palo, president of Deliberate Consulting. He is a corporate storyteller and speaker coach extraordinaire. This is the second episode in our four-part series for Making the Pitch. If you missed the first one, Creating a Pitch, you may want to go back as these four episodes are sequential. There's so much to learn from Kevin, so stick around till the end. Today, we'll be discussing how to customize the message to your audience and how to plan the presentation. Information, links, and a transcript from today's episode are available in the show notes. Let's get into it. What other elements in a business is having a crafted message critical? What, what, mes- what other messages should a business look into other than their pitch? So yeah, there's the sales pitch, but there's also leadership communication. When leaders in an organization, let's say they've got a town hall meeting or an all hands on deck meeting, and they bring in the team and they're, they're presenting to the team, lots of times it's directive communication. We're going to do this. Your job is to do X, Y, and Z with the implicit or explicit threat that if you don't do it, you're going to get fired. Communication like that leads to people doing just enough to not get fired. If you've ever worked in a large organization, you know exactly what I'm talking about. People see these management fads come and go, and we just got to survive till next year when we get the new vice president or until their, their focus changes to the next fad, right? So just let's keep things going with the way we know it needs to work, and we'll pay some lip service to, to what the boss is talking about. But for that leader who's trying to get people to align to a new strategy, that strategy's success depends on commitment and people in the organization supporting that strategy as it's intended to be supported. And that requires a different form of communication. Again, it needs to be persuasive. You can't convince anyone to do anything. You've got to help them convince themselves. And if you can come in and give them the what's in it for what's in it for you, you know, now you're not selling a product, but you are selling a behavior. You are selling a change, even though it's internal. So you've got to, you know, again, give some perspective. Why is this important? How is this going to benefit you as an audience member or a member of the organization? Now let's get into to talking about what are the steps you're going to take? How is it going to be measured? Why, again, why is it important? Why is it needed now for the organization? Why do you need to take part in this? And then where has something like this been successful in other organizations, right? So leadership communication takes the same basic format. 
You're still trying to persuade others to change behaviors. It's just in a, in a different context. Technical communication. So even if you're not selling them something, you're talking to your peers in the organization or in partner organizations, and you're talking about technical things. Let's talk about production values. Let's talk about testing. Let's, you know, whatever the technical area you're involved in. Heck, if you're in human resources, let's talk about uh, recruiting or talent development or talent retention or exit interviews, whatever it happens to be, you're still trying to get information across, but it's not just giving information. If it was just information, you put in an email and you hit send. You're trying to persuade others to support your idea. You're selling a behavioral change. So if you ever need commitment or resources or time or approval, you need to persuade and again, those elements come into play. So even though it's not about selling a product, you are selling your idea. When we talked earlier, you had mentioned a great analogy, and I was wondering if you remembered it about the book report format. Yep. Can you tell me tell me about that again? Because it was about driving decision and behavior. Yeah. In business, I see people generally using the same presentation format they learned in junior high school. I'm going to call it the book report format. And so in a, let's, let's, let's look at a book report and then let's compare that to business. So in a book report, let's imagine you're 13 years old. Again, you're in English class. You have to give a book report that, that you were giving. Um, and generally what you do is you say, hi, my name is today. I'm here to talk about this book. I'm going to talk about the plot, the characters and the author. And then you talk about those three things. And then you summarize those three things and you ask, do you have any questions? And generally the only person who had any questions was the teacher. No one else in the class because no one else cared because the purpose of the book report is to show you did the homework. It's not to convince anyone else to read this book. And that's what we learned all through academia is typically showing you did the homework. When it comes to the business world, most people don't care if you did the homework. They assume you did, but they don't want to go through all the gory detail of all the homework that you did. What they want to know is, can you solve my problem? Are you interesting to talk to? Do I want to buy from you? Or do I want to work with you if it's an internal presentation? Those require very, very different ingredients. And if we go in just trying to show all the work we've done, and bury them with details, people don't make decisions that way. And again, it gets back to having the same meeting over and over and over again, and we don't understand why the audience isn't making any progress through the funnel. God, this is the third meeting I've had with them. What don't they get? And they may get it, but they're not motivated because they don't understand what's in it for them. And maybe their, their fears or, or their other drivers aren't being addressed with what you are sharing. So that's a problem. So we need to change. And that's where the whole, you know, having different ingredients to your messaging is so important. Having those insights, talking about specific benefits that matter to your audience, tailoring the message to your specific audience, tailoring the message to get to the next step, right? The, you know, let's talk about that for a second. If my next step is to get a meeting, that's very different things I need to talk about than if my next step is to get them to sign the purchase order. Very different things. If I'm trying to get that next meeting, I just need to give them enough 
motivation and content to get that next meeting, not to close the deal. But I'm trying to close the deal if I'm giving them the high level concept introduction and who you've worked with in the past and all that, you're going to end up sabotaging the deal. So it depends, you know, the goal really, really impacts what the, what the content is going to be. Yeah. I think it's important to, to know if you're talking about the wrong thing or if you're wasting someone's time. And uh, I think that understanding what you're saying, what your message is, if it's crafted well, if it's a bad message, then what you're wasting your time in theirs and then you've lost that opportunity forever potentially yeah because you can't hit redo even though sometimes you wish you could yeah we yeah. wish you could you know, and the reality is is that we're we're already doing that today we're already giving bad messages and so sometimes there's a worry well if i do things differently if i use storytelling what if you know what if i lose credibility what if they say no to you so it's okay to hear no. I mean, I know when we're trying to sell, we're trying to keep our business afloat. We need the revenue. But getting a firm no is a good thing because now you can stop chasing that person. Put your effort into other leads and opportunities versus trying to convince something, someone to buy something they don't see a need in. Now, that's hard to swallow sometimes, but you know, how much time do we spend chasing down opportunities that just never really turn into anything? And how much of that is them genuinely showing no interest versus me having the wrong message or the wrong delivery? Well, it can be both, right? Because even if it's something that they need, they well, there's a whole bunch of reasons behind that. They may not realize they need it. They may not see what you do is any different than what they're already doing. So why go through the pain of trying someone new and the cost of trying something new and upsetting a current relationship with a current provider when you're not going to get any change in outcome? It could be, you know, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, I just, I, you know, uh, we, we can't afford that. It's too expensive. Well, is the solution too expensive or is it the cost of change too expensive? Is it the fact they don't have a budget for it this year, but they might have a budget for it next year. Those are very different things. And so we hear the, you know, their reason why they're saying no, and we make assumptions without validating what's the, what's the core reason behind that no. But sometimes it's just, we don't see any value in this. Well, that may be because the message is wrong, but it may be that your solution really doesn't provide them any additional value. What's the biggest or most common mistake you've come across with your clients? What do you see frequently that you feel like you have to undo? Stripping out all emotion. Hmm. But aren't people emotional decision makers? Yes, they are. And that's a problem. It's not a problem that they're emotional decision makers. It's a problem that we've stripped emotion out of our messaging. Ah, okay. What I mean by that. You know, if I'm selling to an organization that's a large engineering firm, for example, and I'm talking to engineers, I tend to make it very technical because by golly, they are technical people. And I strip all emotion out of it. Most presentations I see are stripped of emotion. It's all logic, logic, logic. But people are emotional decision makers, even engineers. Engineers do have emotions. They're just very deeply, generally. You mean they're human? They're human beings. <laughs> and <laughs> what that means is we need to inject some emotion into the messaging. 
That doesn't mean we need to make them angry or sad or laugh, although laughter is a good thing, but we need to keep keep emotion in there. And by emotion, what I mean are things like, again, picking out what are the key things driving their decisions? What are the big benefits that they care about? That's emotional. Now, some things are more emotional than others. Getting your bonus is more emotional than saving money for your company. But even saving money for your company, if that's your your KPI that measures your performance, you can still connect the dot. Well, that's how I get my bonuses by being able to achieve that goal. If you're talking to a leader, say a CEO, yes, there are certainly financials and shareholder um, metrics that they care about, but they also care about things like legacy. What's their legacy? What impact are they going to have on, on the organization 10 years after they retire? Are people aligned with their strategy? They care about that. Because they care about that, that's emotional for them. Sharing perspective and insight is emotional because, wow, I've never thought about things that way. Have you ever had that aha moment in a, in a well, heck, not just even in a meeting or a presentation, but even watching a movie or a TV show. Sometimes it's like, whoa, what did I just see? And you end up thinking about it for days. That's emotional. Being able to support things with evidence and proof that resonates, that can be somewhat emotional. And then just, you know, just overall being more interesting. Lizard brain, all they know is, wow, I really like the way that she presents. I really like the message that she brought us today. That's emotional. So we want to do those things. How do we make decisions? I mean, do you feel like people all have similar decision-making processes? Yes. Uh, how's that for a, for, a, for a short answer? Short, sweet. So, yes. So when you look at, at human beings, we, we use the same sorts of processes. Yes, there are cultural lenses and individual lenses and organizational lenses, but human beings still make decisions the same basic way. People tend to make emotional decisions. And then they seek out logic and data to support those emotional decisions. And if the logic and the emotion match, it's a fast, easy decision. If the emotion and the logic don't match, people still tend to go with that emotional decision and then they regret it later. So a great example of that is how many times have any of us gone out to buy a car? We know exactly what our budget's going to be how much we want to spend per month. And then we get on lot and we see the car that's got the larger screen and the better technology and the air conditioned seats. Mm-hmm. And we end up you know, driving off the lot with a car much more expensive than what we intended to buy because the emotions took over. I want those air conditioned seats. I love that big screen. And then as soon as you drive off the lot, you're like, oh my God, what did I just do? Right. It's a huge, huge expense, expense right? Too. We have the buyer's remorse. <laughs> or, you know, if you know, as as sellers, if we're if we're not creating and conveying emotion in our messaging, well, then the audience has to rely on logic. And if they're relying on logic to make decisions, it tends to take a lot longer, or they don't make a decision at all. And we've all heard the term analysis paralysis. And when we go in and, again, try to educate and just dump a huge amount of data and logic on somebody, they get overwhelmed. It's hard for them to make a decision. 
And that's why, you know, for most of us, we, we've made a great recommendation, very logical. And the customer says, that makes perfect sense. But then they never buy. Or we keep having the same meeting over and over and over again. And they don't disagree with what you're saying, but they're not making the decision to move forward. To me, those are symptoms of missing emotion. There's no sense of urgency there. You're not creating you know, the, the sense that this is something I really like, or this is someone I really like and want to work with. And I'm scared of missing out. Without those emotions, you're unlikely to get the decision. When you, when you talk about emotions and decision-making, it reminds me of the whitening toothpaste commercials. You have yellow teeth, whether you do or you don't, but we're going to tell you, you have yellow teeth, so you need our whitening toothpaste. All the other ingredients don't matter, but the whitening element, that's what you need. And it's an emotional buy because everyone wants to have white teeth for some social status reason or competence. Uh, but, you know, it, it reminds me of, of that yeah, they're playing on your emotion, on, on, on your vanity, right? Mm-hmm. On your vanity. That's right. Yeah. We all have it, whether whether you want to admit it or not, we all do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do multiple or unique cultures play a role in decision-making and your corporate storytelling and the whole emotional element to buy in? So from what I've seen, it, Decision-making is the same no matter where I go. Now, there are differences in just in, a, in approach and application. So, for example, when I, in one of my workshops where we're doing training, we recommend not introducing yourself until a few minutes into the presentation. We'd rather have you start with, you know, high-level perspective and what's in it for the audience and what you're there to talk about before you introduce yourself. Because, frankly, your audience doesn't care who you are. They care what they're going to get out of this, right? But in some cultures, you know, as us be specific, East Asia, if you don't, or Asia in general, if you don't come in and introduce who you are and give credibility on why you're there to talk, how, you know, what, what relationships you have with the organization or with the decision maker, they're not going to listen to what you have to say because all they're thinking of is this person's very rude. Right, right. They disrespected right? me from the beginning. Whether, wh- whether right. you know it or not, you just really have to know that audience and their cultural mannerisms and how they expect it, to be treated in business, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and, and, you know, if we look at, and I'm, and I'm, I'm painting with very broad stereotypical brushes here. So, so forgive me if I've been anybody. So lots of times for Russians, the culture is you have to show how smart you are. And so they will find reasons on why the presenter is, is wrong. Even if all their technical information is correct, you know, or as a presenter, my technical information is correct, I might be corrected on the conjugation I used in a verb, right? So it's just, it's just, you know, and it's, it's not good or bad. It's just a different way in understanding that, you know, there's different ways people and different things people have to do based culturally. And that's not just regional culture, but organizational culture as well. So when you're giving a pitch or a presentation, what tips do you have when you're dealing with somebody who's not American? How do you approach that? What do you do differently? So I, I don't do a lot differently. So where I introduce myself may change or does change based on what region I'm in, but content and message and the ingredients really stay the same. 
one, you know, some things that we have to be careful of in, in international communication is idioms. So a phrase that, that Americans might use may not translate well in, into other languages. Sports analogies or sports metaphors or sports language that I would stay away from. You know, baseball and football don't work well outside the U.S. Um, political figures. I'm talking, you know, we not only do we, you know, does each country have its own political history, but a popular figure here may not be a popular figure in your audience's country. Or, for example, Americans like to use Winston Churchill, um, you know, quotes and references lots of times in in their presentations that doesn't necessarily play well in other parts of the world. Would it be a good idea to kind of find something like that that's culturally uh, acceptable? Like maybe find yes. a cartoon in another language and that person's language or something that, but I mean, I guess that would be, you'd have to be sensitive. It's harder, harder for us to yes. follow. Right? <laughs> well, you have to be sensitive too, because you don't want to be insulting with your cartoon or whatever, you know, but. Right. Well, and anything we do, you know, you know, in our, in our storytelling or in our messaging in general, we want to make sure that we're not doing anything that, that is distracting or irrelevant or doesn't resonate because if it doesn't resonate, then why are we, why are we talking about it? I so just, things just got to be careful. Just, I just encourage people to think about it. You know, always think about it from your customer's point of view. How are they going to receive this? And if you're not sure, we'll find another way that it's more likely to to, to work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about decision-making and we're talking about people being emotional decision-makers, and obviously you've got to play to their intelligence too, because these are intelligent people. Yes. So how do you how do you guide them to making a decision fast? Well, so again, you know, making sure we're putting some emotion into it. But another thing is I recommend staying out of the weeds. Keep it at a high level. Use layman's language that anyone can understand. So even if we're talking to a customer that, that's in let's say in the chemical industry, and a lot of people will go in and talk literally at a at a at a molecular level because they're talking to a chemical company but the thing is they're also talking to people that are in procurement and they're talking to people that are in marketing who don't who aren't chemists and it's hard for them to truly understand what you're saying and even chemist to chemist inorganic chemists and organic chemists speak different languages and getting you know if you go in and talk inorganic to an organic chemist it doesn't necessarily translate, even though they may, you know, you as the presenter and the audience may both be PhD chemists, it's different language. And so, you know, that's true for any organization. If you're going in and, and talking to your customer, keep it at a, at a 10,000 or 30,000 foot level. Keep it fairly high level without a lot of technical jargon or detail. If your customer is technically savvy in what you're talking about, they will, if they want more detail, they will ask or they will test you to find out your level of knowledge. And if you're still an expert, you can still answer that. But make your, make your customer pull you down into the weeds. Don't start in the weeds. Hmm. Because, just because they're smart doesn't mean 
they're going to connect the dots. And, and let's be honest, everyone is so busy and you're competing for bandwidth. You, you know, even though you're, you may be the only person in the room in front of them, they're still thinking about the performance reviews they have to do next week. They've got to update their budget, their kids heading off to college soon. Uh, anniversary is, 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 is next month. All these other things are going on in the back of their mind and you're having to fight for attention. Yeah. And if you keep things complex, maybe very logical, and your customer may be capable of connecting the dots and, and understanding it, but we can't make that assumption because they're busy and they're, they're thinking about other things too. Buyers outside of your organization, for example, even if they're not buyers, if they're stakeholders in general, anyone who has an interest in what you're doing, maybe even from a political perspective or philanthropic perspective versus internal communications. So you've got the internal corporate side and you've got the external communication. How how do you approach decision making um, internally versus externally to your organization? But what I found is that internal sales are a lot harder than external sales. Getting management, getting my own management to buy in is harder than getting my customers to buy in. Now, this is this is from my B2B experience. So you know, dealing with one large, one large enterprise to another. Uh, it's hard to get the internal buy-in. And a lot of the you know, large organizations are structured to be efficient to be ruthlessly efficient at what they do, which means they're not very good at doing things differently. Even if different is better, we've got all these layers of middle management who are optimized to stop outliers because efficiency is all about getting rid of outliers, you know, standardizing things. Well, if people's compensation is tied to increasing efficiency, if their development tracks within the organization are all about efficiency and optimization, it's very hard for those same people to accept or champion things that are new and different, unless new or different makes things more efficient. But when you're trying to enter a new market or do, you know, provide a new service or do things in a different way, in a especially if it's a radically different way, these are very hard things for, for organizations and people in organizations to be able to latch onto. You know, with customers, you know, if, you're, if you've got something new, well, they've got pain points. You can generally find a customer who's willing to try something new because they, they recognize the way things are, aren't perfect or, or could be greatly improved. But internally, it's very hard because if a market doesn't exist, how do you how do you justify allocation of resources to chase after a market that you don't know what the potential is or how fast it can grow? Those are hard things for a, for a large organization to deal with. Right. So talking about effective value propositions, is that really more about answering the why? Well, it's, it answers what's in it for me. Mm-hmm. Now there might be a whole lot of reasons why. So What's in it for me is what's the positive thing I'm going to get out of this, but there may be some negative things that create urgency. So regulatory change or two of their biggest competitors have merged and now their competitive space has changed or demographics are changing. You know, millennials might not be buying products that, that baby boomers and Gen X are. 
And so now demand for products are changing or the way people buy is changing. People don't go down to the corner store anymore. They, they buy online. Well, selling on Amazon is altogether different than getting on, getting your product on the shelves. Yeah. Right. So there's just, you know, there's, there's things there that, that can be very, very scary that we need to, to raise, not to scare the customer, but to get them to recognize, look, you know, there's, a, there's an urgency to this. You need to, to, you know, you need to be able to get on to, onto Amazon and be found on Amazon. Right? It's not just getting onto Amazon, but being found and actually being able to stand out and get, you know, be selected. Right. And so there's a lot of things there that we can talk about. Ultimately, you know, it's the, the client doesn't care about getting onto Amazon. What the client cares about is making money. Am, you know, being visible on Amazon is one way to do that. I'm with Kevin Palo of DeliberateConsulting.com. Stick around till after the break. You don't want to miss his advice for Q&A time. And we both have some tips about creating an interactive presentation. We'll be right back. Storytelling in business isn't about the story. It's about the perspective that the story delivers. Can you elaborate more on that? Yeah. So, you know, if we look at, at the way people are, people have, you know, look at human history. We were telling stories before we could ever read or write. And so stories are a great, great way for us to learn. There's, you know, a lot of great books and research out there. People can identify with stories. It helps them remember. So the stories just by themselves tend to be interesting. But when we're learning from something, we need perspective as well. It's not just the do this, do that, but the why behind it and the things that happen with it. So when, when I know I had mentioned this yesterday, but when we go in and talk to a customer, if our customer is fairly well-versed in the topic, we're not there to educate them. When we're talking to a client, if we're going in and trying to educate them that on something they already know, we're going to end up turning them off. Professionals that are presenting tend to do this all the time. They go in and they talk about the things the audience already knows. And at best, the audience is going to go, yeah, I know that. They're going to turn off. At worst, they're going to feel like you're condescending as a presenter. Persuasive communication, we need to give them some perspective. How is our thought different? Or what do we know about their business or their opportunity or their challenges that they don't know? We're an expert in our field. So those are the things that are really enlightening for an audience or for a customer. Tell them something they don't know. Now they're more likely to listen to how are you going to affect it? What are you going to bring that supports this different way of looking at the world? How would you know if the person knows something or not? How would you have, how would you approach that if you don't know their knowledge? So preferably you do know, or you have an idea of what their knowledge level is. But even if you don't, what are things that you're seeing from your other customers? What are you seeing in the marketplace that isn't conventional wisdom? Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. If I want to talk about preventive maintenance, for example, and I go in and I use an analogy along the lines of it's important to get an annual physical 
because at your annual physical, your doctor can find health issues that you have that you may not be aware of and help treat them before they become serious medical conditions as a way to lead into, well, we need to do the same thing with our maintenance of our equipment. All right, almost every adult you talk to will understand and agree that annual physicals are important. And if you come in with that analogy, they're going to feel condescended to. Well, obviously that's true. Yes, I already understand that about my maintenance. But if you come in with a slightly different perspective in that, yes, everyone knows they're important, but how come so, so many adults don't get an annual physical? Well, because they're busy and they've got tons of other things going on in their life and they put it off for a couple of weeks and then for a couple of months and sometimes they don't get a physical for years. And that ends up leading to bad, to, to bad situations health situations. In our business, the same things happen. We know we need to do preventative maintenance, but business gets in the way. We've got constant customer requests and changes and changes in our supplier base. And we end up putting off some of those things that are really critical to maintaining our infrastructure. Today, I'm here to talk about how do we do better with that? Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's a different way. And again, you know, you're not telling them the the earth is round. They already know that, mm-hmm. right? So it's, you know, what are we need to come at it with a different, a different view that leads into what we're there to talk about and how we can help them. Stories are a great tool for delivering that, that perspective. That perspective. And that perspective, but not in an insulting way where you're reteaching, <laughs> reteaching the same thing that somebody already knows. So it's just a different perspective. So I can see that. That makes sense. What's the different angle? What's the different angle or what is something that you know, based on conversations or experiences you've had with other clients, that people mm-hmm. who are working in their business don't necessarily have that visibility into their competitors or their peers or other aspects of the industry. Now that kind of segues into storytelling for sales. Um, you know, for me, when I started my product line, I was selling at farmers markets. And I'm there physically to say, okay, this is for muscle pain, joint pain, tendonitis, helps reduce bruising. And I would be able to like say, I started this because I have chronic um, tendonitis in my feet. And I was in Europe and I had a flare up. And I talk about the whole story behind that product. And people go, oh, and they remember the story. But when you can't have that face-to-face interaction to tell a story, because that's super memorable. And you know, I think storytelling is a, a very smart strategy for selling anything, whether it's a product or a service or an idea, I think storytelling is critical. But what happens if you have something and you can't tell the story because you're not physically there to tell the story? Great question. And let me just kind of go back to what we were just talking about is that part of the differentiation when you were starting was that you were physically there. You were at the farmer's market versus going by a booth where there's just stuff on display that they're selling, you know, multiple brands from from multiple providers, um, or going to a to a store and buying it. The difference was you were there in person, being able even your message was differentiated because they were able to hear it from you directly. When someone's looking to buy a product, someone from the brand isn't there to talk about it. Most people aren't going to go to the website to get the history, unless they're shopping from home already. But if they're in a store and they're looking at products from three different vendors, it's unlikely they're going to go to the website for each one to make that decision. They're going to make a decision in the moment. 
And part of that may be, again, might be the packaging, might be the label, it might be what the value proposition is, it might just be the price. But it's really hard to build a story into a bottle or packaging to affect people at the point of purchase. Does that make sense? And that's where marketing comes in, is that we're trying to affect people's decisions in the future. We're trying to give them an introduction to our brand and what makes our brand different so that when they're in the store looking at the shelf, they've already have an impression of what your brand is, what makes it different. So a presentation can be five minutes, it can be six hours. It really depends on, on who the audience is, what their needs are, where you are in the, in the, in the buying or decision cycle, uh, how much time you have available. Right? And I can't tell you, I mean, I, I think most people can recognize, you know, they'll, they'll get an hour to present and they go in with three hours worth of content. We have an hour and 142 slides. There's no way on earth they're going to get through all 142 slides. Some general rules of thumb I have is, you know, set aside about a third of your time for questions. And so let's say, let's say I've got an hour to present. That means I've got to build in 20 minutes for questions and dialogue. And I don't build it in at the end. I mean, I can't, I mean, I do, I do have dedicated time at the end, but if I've got 20 minutes for this section, for example, I'm only going to use two thirds of that. So I'm going to use you know, 13 minutes or so, 14 minutes on my content, but set aside six of those minutes to make sure that if I could get, get questions and dialogue, I have enough time to finish the rest of my content. What kind of tools do you recommend for people who are going to give a pitch? Like, like software, for example. I, I mean, maybe like a timer to, to watch yourself while you're speaking. So I, I use timers when I am preparing, but I don't use a timer when I'm actually presenting. So in PowerPoint, when you put it into slideshow mode and you've got the presenter view, there's a timer on there, but I don't use that. Part of that is because in presentations I give, I make the point, one, to make them conversational, but two, it tends to get people to ask questions during it as well. And that can throw off your timing. Running out of time. So let's say, let's say I'm giving a presentation to a customer or a customer group, and I'm getting a lot of a lot of questions and dialogue. To me, that's important than my slides. Because now I'm having a conversation with the client. They are becoming part of the decision and part of the solution. They're getting the answers they need. Should someone practice their presentation before going in? Every time, multiple times. And practice means saying it out loud. Because a lot of people practice in their mind. And then what makes perfect sense inside your head doesn't necessarily make sense when it actually comes spilling out. So you, if, if, if it's, if it's going to be called practice, it has to be out loud. And preferably you should practice presenting to another person or at a minimum recording yourself so you can hear how it comes out. And it's painful to watch yourself on video, but you know what, it's a, it's a great tool. So how long should a presentation be? It depends on how much content you have, right? If you're, if you're selling a, a, a $50 item to an individual, you might need, you might only get five minutes. But if you are selling a $250 million contract to a large customer, well, you can have multiple meetings and some of those presentations might be four or six hours long. 
As far as how much time should be set aside for Q&A, uh, I would also add into that Q&A and dialogue. If you want to have a conversation, I'm a firm believer that we win in the conversation. The presentation earns the right to have the conversation. So we want to set enough time aside for that conversation. Adam, you know, again, depending where you are in the in the in the buying process or the decision process, you might want to set aside a third of your time. That's that's our general rule is that you know, for a big pitch, set aside a third of a third of the time for for dialogue. Because you're going to get interrupted. People are going to have questions. Now, sometimes early in a, in, a, in a buying cycle, when you're first meeting the customer, you really need to understand them. So you need to do your inquiry and your discovery so you better understand what are their specific needs. How do they measure success and failure? What does their budget look like? Who are the decision makers? All that stuff you need to know to help move them through that, that process, the sales process, you need to be able to, to ask those questions early on to steer everything else, all the future meetings that you're going to have. And so in that case, you might only have five or 10 minutes worth of presentation, maybe not even presentation, but even conversation in order to earn the right to ask, to ask those questions. But maybe maybe 90% of your time is actually asking questions and getting feedback, responding, with the intent of understanding, not of selling, right? But practice helps so that you don't have to turn around and remember, oh, what am I supposed to say with this slide? What's a good enough sweet spot for me to, so when should I stop practicing? I would say you can stop practicing when you can go to a piece of paper and essentially write down what, what are the things I'm supposed to say without having to look at your notes. And when I say, what am I supposed to say? I'm not saying word for word scripted, but an outline. Right. What are the key points I'm going to make? General ideas that you want to get to. General ideas. And, and I want it to be conversational. I don't want it to be scripted because when it's scripted, you sound scripted. You sound like a robot or an actor. People can tell. So for a message, the level of detail I have is an outline. So I know what I'm going to say, what order I'm going to say it, but at an outline level, it forces me to put it into conversational tone. But I need to know what that flow is and the points that I'm making. Right. I know I love that. If I'm ever giving a presentation, I prefer to kind of have like two minutes of who I am and what I'm trying to achieve and then guide engagement with the audience or get questions from them and then have the conversation in that moment and nothing scripted really it's more of a dialogue like you say i feel like when you do the you know that type of engagement people one you're, you're establishing kind of credibility with that person in a one-on-one -on -one contact versus talking at them and then also you're addressing that particular person's need because you again like you said you don't know who's going to be in the room and so you don't know what what their driver is for them to participate. So having that question answer kind of dialogue in the beginning kind of sets the framework for how you should target your message, I think. Because I'll give you an example. I gave a presentation back in September and it was about FDA guidelines. Um, and so my background's more on the topical side, not on consumables, but the majority of the people in the audience were interested in consumables. So why would I focus the conversation on something that's not even in their wheelhouse or their interest. So having that, establishing that baseline from the beginning, I think will target your message to solving that person's need and providing that value that you're talking about. 
Yeah, no, and so when it comes to message strategy, you know, the, the strategy for a particular presentation or a particular meeting, there's some things you really, you know, anybody really needs to think about, which is who's in my audience? Who do I expect to be there? Also, what is my goal for this meeting or for this presentation? And by goal, what do I want them to do or decide? And it shouldn't be something wishy-washy like they understand my value or that they like me or they trust me. Those are all given. What do you want them to actually do? Do you want them to set up the next meeting? Do you want them to introduce you to their procurement group? Do you want them to provide you data? Do you want them to co-author a paper? Do you want them to sign the purchase order? I don't know. It depends where you are in the, in, the, in the buying cycle. But you need to be very, very clear at the end of this specific meeting, what do I want this specific audience to do? Anytime your audience changes or anytime your goal changes and anytime, obviously, your subject or topic changes, your message has to change too. And so if you're going in to talk about topicals, but they're interested in supplements, you're talking to the wrong audience or you're talking about the wrong things with this audience. That's right. And you, I, I go into that mindset, oh, okay, everyone wants to learn about topicals, but they don't, you know? And so it's, you have to set the stage that you're going to be flexible and a lot of it will not be planned out. You don't know what you're going to say necessarily. And I think that provides a genuine response for one. It's not something that you can really practice repeating because you don't know what the question will be, but it also proves that you are educated on the subject and then you get more equity into that conversation with trust with that person, I think. No, uh, agreed. And you're talking about the things that they care about now versus just giving them a pitch that you know really doesn't apply to them, right. which they're going to completely ignore, which means they're not going to do anything with it, right? Which means you're wasting your time and theirs. And, you know, sometimes, you know, if, if you find yourself in the situation where you plan to talk about one thing and you get there and find out the audience isn't interested in that, well, my advice is that's the time to turn off PowerPoint and just have the conversation with them. And you can even say things like, you know, I was really planning to talk about topicals today, but I can see that that's not the driver for you. Tell me, what's your driver? Why is that important? Tell me experiences that you've had with, you know, some challenges around finding the right products. That opens up all sorts of, of, of avenues for conversation to get them to talk, which them talking is a lot more interesting to them than to listen to you talk. They're becoming part of the solution. They're giving you gold in terms of, of discovery and inquiry. And you can still share your experiences and your insights and, 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 things that come up in the conversation. It won't be as robust. You may not have all the data points that you would have had on a slide if you came in prepared for it, but you can still talk about it at a high level. And that that's interesting. If I'm in the audience, I particularly look forward to Q&A time because I always feel like somebody in the audience has the same question that I have. I learn more after having that experience of hearing other people ask questions versus being talked at. So I like the Q&A aspect. That's how I like to learn. I'm sure other people are maybe the same. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I think most people are. And, you know, if someone has a question, well, like you said, it's likely that someone else in the audience has that same question. 
And so that's why we don't want to save questions for the end necessarily. You know, lots of times you'll present our well, hold all your questions till the end. Well, the problem is, is that someone who's got the question sits there stewing on that one question and they don't listen to another word you so have true. to say. I've, I'm that, I'm that right. person. <laughs> like, <laughs> answer my question already. <laughs> I'm that person. Yeah. And, and even if you're going to talk about it, let's say you are doing a presentation and that topic is going to come up in 10 slides. You're going to talk about that. You don't want to leave it hanging for 10 slides. You know, it might be 20 minutes. So, you know, if someone asks the question, you can give the short answer, the 50,000 foot view level of it, and then say, I'm going to talk about that in a lot more detail in about 10 minutes or about 20 minutes. Can you hold on till then to talk about it in more detail? 99% of your audience will say, yeah, that'd be great. But now they're satisfied. They're satisfied that you're going to talk about the thing that they care about. So one of the things that I've kind of done in the, in the past with my, some of my clients is create interactive PowerPoints. So if you're trying to tailor a message, what we could do is like in slideshow mode, actually create buttons. So, okay, so your, your question is about uh, timeline. Okay, well, let's get into that section on how to actually manufacture that item and the timeline and the realistic turnarounds and whatever. So like having uh, navigation points for the salesperson in your presentation will be a really easy way to pivot that topic depending on what your interaction is, your question that you're getting. And you can just always go back to home and then check, select the next topic and jump to that part of your presentation. I think that helps avoid the flipping around and okay, just one second, hold on. Let me, let me find it. Okay. Sorry about that guys. You know, that, that whole thing people don't have patience for. Oh, uh, agree. So I've done this as well. Once I had a boss, uh, well, not a boss, uh, vice president of our division. I got to meet with him once a year to do a review of our, of our program. And I had an hour with him once a year, no chance to talk to him ahead of time. And I wasn't exactly sure what his drivers were. So I had a, a core message at a high level. This is what I, I want to make sure I get across. I want to talk about this other thing. And at the end, I've got a specific recommendation asking for resources. So I need to cover that. But for the middle, for about 20 minutes in there, there are there might be nine different things that I could talk about. I don't have time for more than one or two, but I can talk about one or two things out of this group of nine, but I don't know which one of those is going to resonate most. And so when it came to, to, to presenting to them, I got through the first two parts that I needed to get through. And then I got to a, a slide that had nine thumbnails on it. And each of them was labeled. One was health and safety and environment. One was developing uh, or identifying and developing leaders. One was service quality, you know, those, those sorts of levels of discussion. We got to that slide and I said, okay, Gary, there's a lot of different things I can talk about, but I wanna talk about the things that matter most to you. Of these nine topics, which one is most interesting? And right off the bat, he immediately said, I'm always worried about identifying and developing our next generation of leaders. So I clicked on that thumbnail and it took me to those slides. And I was able to go through that section. We finished, had a little bit of a conversation. I said, we've got time to talk about another one. What else do you want to talk about? And he picked something else. And so we talked about that. And, what, and then he got through that. And then I was able to give my final recommendation around resources and be able to give my ask and again, have some Q&A at the end. And what it, what it meant was that for those 
those seven topics that he didn't choose, I put a lot of work in developing slides that he never saw. But for what he did see were things that he cared about. And he had buy-in because he was able to steer the conversation to the things that he cared about. He became part of the solution and he was way more engaged. Those are all wins. So that's one way to narrow down what you're talking about is because to your point, making it adaptive so that it's easy to talk about the things that they care about, even if it's at the expense of some of the things that you don't talk about. But it comes down to opportunity cost, right? If I can talk about nine things, I've only got time to talk about two. Do I talk at nine, all nine at the speed of light where they don't get anything? Or do I talk about the two things that are going to make a difference? To learn more about what it's like to work with a message strategy coach, visit Kevin Palo's website, deliberateconsulting.com. He has some great videos on there that will help you out. You can also find him on LinkedIn. Thank you so much, Kevin, for being on the show again today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. This was our second episode, and we've got two more left, and I can't wait. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, please subscribe to Making It to Market wherever you listen to podcasts or listen from our website, makingittomarket.com. Thank you for your honest five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And a special thanks to our listeners and show sponsors. Without your support, I wouldn't be able to do this. As you know, Making It to Market is a new show and I need your help to get the word out. Feel free to share your links to your favorite episodes. You don't want to miss the next one where we talk about body language. If there's a topic you'd like to hear, have a comment, or even a question you'd like for me to address, feel free to leave me a voice message on our podcast phone line. And if we hear your question or comment in an upcoming episode, we'll send you a Making It to Market t-shirt or mug. Details are in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Until the next time, make decisions that make a difference.